Welcome. When I was a kid, um, once a year on TV, I can't remember even what network it was. You remember when there were three networks? That was a thing when I was a kid, too. Um, I don't remember what network showed it, but once a year, and I think it was around Halloween, but maybe not. Just, I think that just because it was scary. But once a year, they would show The Wizard of Oz. You guys remember that? Everyone, and we got, as kids, we got so excited about, oh, The Wizard of Oz is coming on. Some of you, you know, you're Sound of Music people, and that was, that was the thing for you. For me growing up, it was The Wizard of Oz, which, no, I don't let my kids watch. Um, but it was so cool because it was, you know, it was this fantasy story, and, you know, uh, with, uh, with Dorothy and Toto and the Yellow Brick Road and the Ruby Slippers and the Emerald City and the, the Cowardly Lion and, and all this and the tornado, everything, and the flying monkeys, which were the freakiest thing. Why did our parents let us watch the... the they were the creepiest things in the world. Um, and I talked to Linda Sharp yesterday, who has never eaten a monkey, I don't think, but has eaten everything else in West Africa, right? Okay, except for a monkey. Um, side note. <laughs> anyway, as, as I was thinking about The Wizard of Oz and that old show, that old movie... And it was fascinating yet scary. You know how the, you had the wicked witch, and she gets melted by water, and, and, she, and Dorothy's on this journey to get herself back to Kansas, and she finds these people to accompany her, the cowardly lion and the tin man and the scarecrow, and finally they get to the city, and they come before the great and terrible Oz, right? And it's this scary moment, this loud voice, and they're scared, and then somehow somebody notices a curtain, and a man behind the curtain. And Oz says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? And they realize, well, this really is just a show. This isn't really what's going on here. If we pull the curtain back, we see that there's just a man back there pulling strings and using fear to control people, using fear to influence, using fear to motivate. And and I think if we're honest as humans, that is how we live so often. We are motivated. Sometimes we're controlled by the things that we're afraid of. I mean, just think of the things that you don't do out of fear. We're driving back from the lake yesterday, we came up through Terrebonne. We look over to the right as we're going over the gorge. And my wife and I look at each other like, what in the world would make someone want to bungee jump? Not interested and there's people paying hundreds of dollars to jump off a bridge. I don't get it. Won't do it. Amen. Yeah. Fear keeps me from risking my life in silly ways like that. Sometimes fear motivates you to do stuff like that because you like the thrill. But fear often causes us to not do things that we probably should do. And oftentimes fear causes us to do things that we ought not to do. And Jesus knew as he's speaking with his disciples in this passage of Matthew 10, and he's sending them out into the world, he says, as sheep or lambs in the midst of wolves, into a pack of wolves. I'm sending you out into a dangerous situation. He knew that fear would affect them because he was sending them to a scary place to do a, a scary job. And they would be kept from openly and boldly proclaiming his message, the message of the kingdom of God, the gospel, they would be kept from that because of, of opposition and, and because of persecution. And they would be afraid of people. 
who could harm them, who could kill them, who could threaten them, who could betray them. So he stops here for a few verses and takes a pause, basically, and says there's at least three reasons that you should not fear them. Verse 26, he gives the first, and and it's because all will be made known. Here's what he says. He says, you shouldn't be afraid of them, for nothing has been kept veiled which will not be unveiled, and nothing is kept secret which will not be disclosed or made known. What I speak to you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the rooftops. And so the first of these three reasons why his disciples should not fear their opponents as they go out and spread his message, the first of the three reasons is actually pretty curious. If you, if you read it, you might just go, I'm not, I'm not sure what the reasoning here. And it's basically this. Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be afraid because there's going to be a revelation, an unveiling that is coming. There will be a time when everything that is hidden will be brought into the light when everything will be made known. Now you think about that in the face of someone who wants to kill you because you're talking about Jesus, and it may not sound super consoling. So I shouldn't be afraid of people who want to kill me because at some point all will be brought into the light. How does that help me when I'm dead? But Jesus' words here should for us bring into mind a future day. Uh, the scriptures call it a, a ju- day of judgment or the, or the day of the Lord. It's a time when everything will be exposed, every deed, every thought, every intention, every character trait, every deceit, every desire. So, so why should this future day of judgment, though, cause us not to fear now? In one sense, Jesus is likely telling us that in the end, everything is going to get sorted out. Because their behavior, those who are opposing Jesus, those who are opposing his gospel, those who are opposing you, what they do is actually revealing who they truly are. And so Jesus is encouraging us by pointing to the man behind the curtain. See, and there will be a day when the curtain gets pulled out and you go like, oh, that's all that was going on here. A reality that will be fully exposed at the judgment. So so when the end is kept in mind, when when our opponent's end is kept in mind, or Jesus' opponent's end, then they're not as scary as they seem. In other words, if you were to see them for what they really are and where they're really going, you wouldn't be afraid of them at all. In fact, you would have pity on them. If you were to see them for what was to really happen with them, when all is exposed, you would have pity on them, which I think is why Jesus could say to us, hey, you've, you've heard that it was said, love your, love your friends and your neighbors, but hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And to see their end is, is to hopefully be exposed and, and have well up in us a pity for them, that we would pray for them. Because we know that when the curtain gets pulled back, it's just a man behind the curtain. Jesus points out that this revelation, this unveiling, this bringing everything into the light is is not just, though, reserved for the future. In fact, we're, we're able to experience a taste of the future 
even now as, as we share, as we speak of Jesus, as we proclaim the gospel to the world, our pr- proclamation of the gospel is a, is a foretaste of making known, of bringing to the light. So he says, go and take all the things I talked to you about in secret and proclaim them. Speak them in the light. Go on the rooftops and yell them out. Make them known. Things are veiled now, but they will one day be unveiled. Things are hidden now, but they will one day come into the light. And when we courageously proclaim what Jesus tells us in secret, we actually bring that day into the present by means of the word of God. As Hebrews tells us, and you're probably familiar with this passage, it says, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does the Word of God do? The Word of God reveals. The Word of God pulls back the curtain. The Word of God makes known what is in our hearts. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The point is that Jesus says, when you go and proclaim my gospel, you're actually bringing that revelation. You're actually exposing what is hidden. The bold proclamation of the word of God that will uncover the secrets of people's souls. So there's there's nothing that brings clarity about where someone stands in relation to Jesus like the gospel preached to them. To tell a person, to tell you and me, we've all experienced this, to tell us, Hey, there's a God that created you who's perfectly holy and to whom you're accountable. And guess what? You've rebelled against him since the time you were born. And because of that, you deserve eternal punishment. That is not a fun thing to hear. The kicker is that people don't like their secrets exposed. We don't like to be convicted of our sins. We don't like to be called to submit to another king other than ourselves. So often hearts respond and they respond violently and persecution then is simply the result of unveiling hearts that are opposed to Jesus. Persecution happens because hearts have been exposed by the word of God and unveiled. Now we don't judge people's hearts. But Jesus says that they will be known by their fruits. It's the word of God that convicts. It's the word of God that brings uh, unveiling and people's own actions reveal that they're either opposed to Jesus or receptive to him. So Paul, when he's writing his epistle to the Philippians, he tells them actually, he says, you know what? The opposition that you're undergoing is actually a good sign of your own faith. Chapter 1, verse 27 He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So as a church, as a body, be standing side by side together, speaking the gospel, embodying the gospel in the world, bringing the kingdom and not frightened by your opponents. Do not be afraid of them. Then he goes on to say, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that's from God. In other words, 
Their opposition to you and your standing in unity is a sign to them. It's a revealer of hearts. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, the first reason was a little unclear. The second reason is, and third reason, a little bit more clear. So we're going to spend the rest of our time on these. In verse 28, Jesus says this. He repeats himself. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna or in hell. The second point kind of amplifies the, the first in that the true nature of those who oppose Jesus is clear in how they respond to the gospel. But what also is clear is that their power against you is also limited. They can only harm your body. Does that sound like good news to you? It still hurts, right? That still doesn't sound real fun. They can only harm your body, but they cannot touch your soul. They cannot touch who you truly are. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that our souls are only who we truly are and our bodies are, are of no value at all. Biblically speaking, we are souls and bodies. Our, our bodies, yes, will one day die and decay. We're promised new bodies at the resurrection. And the point here, yeah, Tom wants a new body, a new spinal cord, right? That'd be nice. The point here is that even though people can threaten part of you, they don't have the same power of God who can either curse or bless all of you. And by the way here, the word, which in our modern kind of sensibilities makes us cringe a little bit, the word translated hell, is the word Gehenna. And Jesus used that word. It was actually a, a place. It was a geographical place outside of the, the city of Jerusalem. It was a garbage dump in this valley outside of Jerusalem, and it was perpetually burning. It was always on fire. It was basically a big incinerator. And so instead of heading up to the landfill, you'd take your garbage out to the valley and dump it in there, and it just is part of the fire. And Jesus uses this as a, as, as a, a symbol to, to speak about the future. And in the end, what he's saying, the worst thing your persecutors can do to you is to kill your body and throw it on a garbage dump. But God can throw your body and your soul into an eternal garbage dump. Which sounds better? Either, right? God has so much more power is the point. So much more authority than any of our enemies ever could. Even the greatest of our enemies, Satan himself, is limited in the same way. As we see, his, his real power is fear, and he gets exposed as a man behind the curtain himself. Hebrews 2 tells us this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and other, in other words, we have bodies, we have flesh and blood bodies, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things. He himself took on a human body, that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, this is amazing, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are motivated and constrained by fear, often. And oftentimes we're motivated by the fear of death. And Satan's power is limited to that. 
I can kill you and I can make you afraid that I'm going to kill you. And he plays that as a trump card over us. But what if Satan's biggest weapon were somehow neutralized? Say, the Son of God is raised from the dead and overcomes death. Then what happens to Satan's power? Smoke and mirrors. Nothing. The man behind the curtain. And that's Jesus' point here. The only one who deserves our fear is the one who has absolute and total power over both body and soul, our God and creator. And this is the testimony of all of Scripture that we should fear God and Him alone. Deuteronomy 6.13, it is Yahweh, the Lord your God, you shall fear. But, but what does it mean to fear God? Well, Deuteronomy and Isaiah both give us clues. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that you have seen. Isaiah 11, verse 3, His delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. The fear of God isn't some just tremble in your boots, always hiding under your bed because you think God's going to give you a cosmic spanking. The fear of God is, is worship, obedience, reverence, awe, love, trust, delight, and yes, trembling before the maker of the universe. All these things constitute fearing him. This is the same fear upon which wisdom and knowledge are built. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And biblically speaking, the antidote for fear is to replace it with a better fear. Fear of a better sort, the fear of God alone, as Melissa read this morning from Psalm 27 the Lord, Yahweh, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When, evil sa- when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, to kill my body, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. And this leads us then into the third reason not to fear, and it's this, because... Your Father sovereignly cares for you. Jesus reminds us that we're not dealing with the -the run-of-the-mill God when we live in the fear of Yahweh. We're dealing with a kind and caring Father. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And one of them will not fall to the ground apart from your Father's care. Even all the hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. This God who does not stay distant, but comes to us, calls us children. He isn't sending us into the midst of the wolves because he hates us. Or because he's treating us as pawns in his cosmic chess game. God's power over soul and body extends to his sovereign and loving care over the very hairs of our heads. Jesus is actually echoing the Sermon on the Mount here in chapter 6 of Matthew, where he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. 
nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He who knows the beginning from the end has taken the initiative to number our hairs and our days and is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He who created the stars, the planets, the solar system oversees the last breath of every sparrow and will not allow anything to happen to us that falls outside of his sovereign care. And if the Father is taking such close and kind care of us, then we don't even have to fear the worst. Because in his economy, the worst that can happen to us is actually the best thing if he allows it in our lives. Fear not, God says, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Your Father tenderly and sovereignly cares for you. And because of God's intimate and sovereign protection, we do not have to fear. But how does God protect us on a practical, everyday level? So I'm going to go out of here. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm not going to get in a car accident when I go home? Or how is that? I'm not going to lose any more hair? What does it mean? Well, one of the ways in which he cares for us is by giving us his church. By giving us a spiritual family, which he calls his flock. And flocks of sheep, flocks of sheep, flocks of sheep, flock of sheep, not gulls, sheep, not sheep, sheep, sorry. <laughs> flocks of sheep always need shepherds. And our Father shows his love and care for his church by providing shepherds to nurture, to care for, to feed, and to protect them. And the New Testament teaches us in many places that our Father has provided for the protection of his people by calling and appointed gifted men of calling and appointing gifted men of character to lead and care for and provide spiritual oversight for the flock. The Apostle Paul calls these men overseers or elders. And it's with a deep sense of really responsibility and joy that we elders serve you as, God, as God's protectors. God working through us to protect you, to tenderly care for you, his flock, through us. And today, it's a joy to acknowledge and to celebrate God's continued real-time care for us right now, today, by bringing us and raising up for us in our midst a new elder by the name of Joe Stenkamp. And I don't know his full name, yeah. You'll have to tell us your full name sometime. No, you don't, okay. Full disclosure. So I invite Joe to come, and I'm going to ask him to stand in your midst among you this morning, and I'm going to invite Tom Hall and Charlie Hughbanks to join me up here at the pulpit as we take time now to thank God for his sovereign care for us as a church as we install Joe as the newest member of the elder team here at First Baptist Prineville. Doc wasn't able to be with us this morning, sadly, but sovereignly. And Charlie agreed as elder emeritus to come up and make sure I don't misstep. Yeah, He's good for me, yeah. 
So I want to, first of all, just explain briefly what eldering is and what elders are and why we're doing this. We believe that the Bible teaches us that elders are chosen and appointed by God and then uh, given to a people who are to recognize that, to test them, which we've done for the past 18 months or so, and then to affirm them. The local body of believers does that. You've been part of that process for the last month or so. As such, elders are, we, we think, God's chosen and appointed shepherds who are tasked to care for, to feed, to protect, to correct, and to lead the flock. And in his infinite wisdom, God has chosen to care and protect his flock through imperfect shepherds. Right? We too are fallen, yet redeemed. And men who walk daily in the grace of God. We don't have it all together, but... We believe that God is doing a work in each of us. So we serve in a certain amount of fear, fear of God, accompanied by trembling even as we stand here before you today. Now I want to speak to Joe, our newest elder, some words of exhortation. And as an elder of FBC Prineville, Joe, you are called and commissioned along with us. We serve as a plurality of elders. This is never a one-man show. You're called and commissioned to take on responsibility for the spiritual oversight and character or care of this flock. And you do so, as Hebrews tells us, as one who will have to give an account one day. And that's not a light thing, but a weighty responsibility. And I asked you how you were doing this morning, and Joe said, I'm starting to feel the weight. In 1 Peter Chapter 5, Peter tells us that as an elder, you will be responsible to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And Joe, this is God's flock, not yours. It's not our flock. It's God's flock. And we are to, and the other thing is that it's the flock that's among you, which means as elders, we have to be among the people. And you stand this morning among the people as one of the people called out to lead the people. You're to exercise oversight, as Peter continues, not under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, not begrudging your service or complaining about God's people. But to do it willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. In other words, knowing that in worldly terms, when all is said and done and you balance your accounts, in worldly terms, you will take a net loss for doing this job. But eternally, you are storing up rewards for yourself in heaven. You serve not for your own glory, but for God's glory. Now, Peter goes on, do it eagerly, which means with joy, with gratitude, and with readiness. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. And as elders, we're examples not by dominating, not by pressuring, not by putting ourselves in front of everyone, and not even by being astounding leaders. We are examples mainly through humility, sacrifice, and service to the flock. Joe, this is a weighty responsibility. It's not a glamorous posting that will gain honor and riches for you. It will come with both joy and sorrow, with gratitude and grief. And with this in mind, do you willingly accept this charge? And will you covenant before God and in the presence of his people to carry out this responsibility with fear and trembling, 
trusting and leaning on God for strength, serving to the best of your ability in the fear of the Lord and seeking by God's grace to care for his church, all for the glory of the risen Christ and the good of his people. That was your chance. I told him, like, if you need to jump out, you could say something else, but praise God for that. <laughs> Tom's like, don't let him, don't let him say that. Now, congregation, I am going to exhort you for a moment. Us, I should say. The local church is a gathering of believers who commit to, to one another to carry out Jesus' directives in a specific place and a specific time. And as such, we are an outpost of God's kingdom in the midst of wolves. In this, present, in this present world, we live as a particular flock in the midst of wolves. And so I address mainly those of you who are covenant members, but really all who call this church home. What covenant members like Eliab have done is to say, this is my family. I commit to this family. I commit to you, brothers and sisters, and I am part of this family, um, come hell or high water, if you will. God has given us family protection through your called and appointed leaders. So here are three exhortations for us, for you as a church family. First is to engage. God has called all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus to engage in a local church. And if it's not First Baptist Church of Prionville, it should be some church. To engage in a local church as a spiritual family. To do life together with other believers. To take responsibility for one another as brothers and sisters in God's family, and as members of Christ's body to submit to and serve one another by using your gifts to build up the church. So first, this is another call, church, to engage with each other as family. Secondly, submit to your leaders. First, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And to put it succinctly, please don't make Joe's job difficult. Don't make it difficult for him to shepherd you. This job is hard enough as it is. You can help make it easier. And one of the ways you can do that is by praying for him, praying for us. That's the third thing. Pray for your leaders, which is perhaps the most important and effective thing you can possibly do. And in turn, we will covet your prayers and we will pray for you as well. That's all I have to say. I want to give these guys a chance, an opportunity, if they would like to say something. Joe, as uh, an incoming elder, I myself feel that God will be with you. He said, fear not, Joe, for I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I know Joe and I know Sharon and I've uh, broken bread with them. I've been in their home. I heard Joe at his home community give testimony of the fact that he can teach us, that he can show us. I pray for Joe in relationship to all of you You've been so good to Tom and myself and Pastor. You're a, great, you're a great group. Help Joe to be the very best elder he can. And Joe, I pray for you. I've walked with you as you've walked through 
training and teaching, and you've been ready to go for quite some time. And God says, now, it's your time. Bless you, Joe. Sharon, be a great supporter of your husband and this body. Thanks, Charlie. Um, Joe, I'm, I'm a little jealous because you got an 18-month internship. Um, when I said I felt called, they said, great, and threw me right in. Um, I've been around for a while. But um, I have said it before, and I'll say it again. I appreciate your humility as a man who had the military career that you did and your post-military career telling people what to do and how to do it, and you come in here with humility, and you're beginning to feel the weight, and you're doing it with fear and trembling, and I appreciate that, and I'm proud to serve alongside of you. You and Sharon are open and honest and transparent about who you are and how you got here, and that is an amazing thing to be and to be proud of. Um, Yes, I pray for you. I know you pray for me, and I'm proud to serve with you. As Charlie mentioned, wait, hold on to that. You're going to need it in a minute. Um, as Charlie mentioned a moment ago, we, we men, men serve as elders at First Baptist Church, but we do not do it alone. So I'm going to invite Sharon to come up and stand with Joe in our midst. And uh, we are going to come down around Joe, and we're going to invite our, our wives up to join us as well. These women um, carry the same amount of weight or maybe more because they're also all protective of their husbands. Um, and so I want to honor that and remind us that uh, we need to be upholding each other and lifting each other up each other in prayer. And I know I am grateful for the support of my bride and um, Joe is of Sharon and Tom and Eileen, Doc and Kathy and uh, Charlie and Maureen, we're grateful. And so we're going to pray for them, lay hands on them, and we invite you to rise with us, stand with us, and just let's pray over them, and I will close, and anybody in the circle that wants to pray can pray. Father God, I thank you for Joe, and I thank you for Sharon. I thank you for this, their testimony in this community. I thank you for their servants' hearts. Lord, I pray... Um, your protection over them as he steps into this role as elder and protector of this church. Father, as he proclaims your word and as he serves and shepherds those in this flock, Lord, I pray that you would give him um, your Holy Spirit's insight and special leading on how and who um, he shepherds. Father God, I just pray that you would, yeah, Keep them, guide them for many years to come. Thank you for them. Father, as we continue to pray this morning, I, I just really can relate to Joe as he has uh, paid a, the price that you've asked us to pay before we lead. He's well aware of the fact that you're watching him and that uh, he is worthy of this, and he knows that he wants to be all that you want him to be, all that your scripture asks for a leader. And Lord, I pray for Sharon and, and her responsibility to love her husband, but to love you first, Lord, to love this congregation and to be a helpmate. 
And most of all, I pray that Joe will soon feel like, like an elder, like, like he should feel. He should be fearful, as we've heard from the word this morning. We all should be fearful. And that really means to honor you, Lord, in all that we do and say. And I pray that for Joe as an elder, that he will honor you and he will serve this body with his best. And Tom mentioned that he is a humble man. Help him, all of you, as a, as a, uh, a body of believers. Encourage him. Thank you, Lord, this morning. Lord, as we appoint this man to this office in your church here at First Baptist, we, are, we do so with humility and we do so with gratitude. Lord, we know that we are fallen. We know that we are sinful and in need of your grace. So God, we ask for daily forgiveness. Lord, we ask for um, empowerment by your spirit and gifting to be able to do the jobs that we do. And so for Joe, I pray that, Lord. I pray that you're your spirit would give him a special filling, a special gifting to be able to shepherd and lead this flock. Lord, that you would use him to speak wisdom and bring counsel and comfort and care and guidance and exhortation um, to, an entire, to an entire body, to specific individuals when called for. Lord, we are grateful for what you've done and your sovereignty you've led us to this point. And so uh, we walk in humility and fear and we pray your blessing and your protection over this family, over their marriage. Pray that you would strengthen their relationship with one another. And as they minister as a couple, Lord, as they serve people, as they teach and counsel and guide, would they do so with humility and with grace, and with care, and with the fear of the Lord each step of the way. Again, we feel that you have blessed us as a body with Joe and Sharon. And we uh, pray that you would continue to guide us and lead us, that you would raise up more elders, that you would use all of us to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the fullness of the Son of God for your glory in this world, in this city, and for your kingdom. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, Joe is going to say a few words, I think. He wanted a chance to talk, a rebuttal, I guess. <laughs> So, brothers and sisters, I am truly grateful to you for putting your confidence in me, the humble servant. Um, as has been mentioned, I had a career as a soldier, and as a soldier, the highest calling you could possibly have would be to lead men in combat where there are mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters who are depending on you to bring their loved ones home. I never commanded troops in combat. I know there are some among us who have. Looking at you, Dave. <laughs> but I also understand that our bodies have expiration dates. Our souls are eternal. And as uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, I know that I will be held responsible for how well I can help shepherd your souls to the final end. 
your souls that have been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, your souls that will last forever. I truly am humbled to have such a weighty responsibility, and I do thank you for your prayers, and I guess I would be totally remiss if I didn't say thank you, family, Skip, Weva, Shane, Sarah, Jeff, Carrie, Colin, and Everett for sharing this special moment today as well. Thank you. This morning we're going to do communion a little bit differently. As the worship team comes up and lead us, our elders are going to serve you communion. So Joe and Sharon will be up here at the center table. Um, Tom and Eileen over there. Carrie and I will be over here at this table. So if you'd like to pick your favorite elder. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> kidding. Well, we know just who go, that is. Go where you usually go. Um, so come on up and take communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the way that we remember his sacrifice for us, what he paid for us so that we could have eternal life and reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins. We remember his bo broken body and his spilt blood on our behalf. And if you're a follower of Jesus by, by faith, then we invite you to come and partake as we serve you. So come. <laughs> 